listening to Rare Bird Radio Podcast, and I'm Heidi Barnes, author of The Bellman and the Bellman Secret. And I'm joined here today with Sarah Tomlinson, author of Good Girl, which is a very compelling memoir. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm great, Heidi. It's wonderful to be here with you today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you, too. Would you like to start a a a little bit about your book first, because I understand it's principally about a father-daughter relationship, and it, it's just so enticing. Or would you prefer I go first? Well, I can start off. Thanks for the introduction. Um, it's true, my memoir, Good Girl, which was published in 2015, is what I call a father-daughter memoir. It's primarily about my attempts to forge a relationship with my dad, who was absent from my life. He was a compulsive gambler who my mother chose to leave when I was quite young. And he also was this sort of fantastic character who was a cab driver and a wannabe mystic. And he was always telling me about, you know, reincarnation or rebirthing or macrobiotics or whatever he was into. He was a great talker and a great personality the few times I saw him as a child. And uh, this set me off on kind of a quest, not just to get to know my dad, but to seek out this kind of bigger life that he had living in Boston. And I was actually growing up in Maine at the time um, as part of an intentional community that my mom had started with some friends, which I'm sure we'll get into more later. Um, but I would say that's sort of the overarching themes of the book which I explore. Well, I, I've read, I haven't read all of it, but I've read a good portion only because I ran out of time, but I will complete it. But it's fascinating to me. And of course, we share a commonality uh, with the state of Maine because both yeah. our books primarily take place there. And that's what's so fascinating as well, because you it's not often you meet somebody from Maine. <laughs> It's true, yeah. So, so it's a pleasure because there's certain parts of the area that only we would understand and appreciate. So now it was so interesting to me, though, your parents met in Trenton, which was so right down the road from where I was. Oh, that's so interesting. So we've got the dual connections, the main connection and the Jersey connection. <laughs> I know. And you were born in Freedom, Maine, in a forest. I was. So, you know, I think as many people who were alive back then would remember in the late 60s and early 70s, sort of as part of the larger hippie culture, there was movement known as the Back to the Land movement. And that was primarily spurred by a lot of the environmental issues that we were having back then, although it seems sort of quaint that uh, – we thought that we had environmental issues in the 70s compared to now. But my mom and my dad and then later my stepfather, who my mom went on to build her house with as part of this intentional community, were really drawn to Maine for its purity, for the wide open spaces and for the kind of the personality of the place, which really has an independent spirit. And so... I really came up with an appreciation for all of that because it was something that my parents had sought out, you know, leaving a more traditional life in New Jersey behind to go up to Maine. Right. Wow. That's so interesting. And you have a journalism degree. 
I do. Yeah, I do. I always wanted to be a writer. I think it's because my mother actually ended up being a librarian and she worked at this very small, super cute library in Bremen, Maine. And, you know, the kind of place where they would raise a lot of their money with bake sales. And if they needed to buy a new computer, they would apply for a grant through Stephen King, who funds a lot of the literary efforts in Maine. It's true. And so I just grew up with this great appreciation for books and this great love of writing. But as I went out into the world, I realized it's not just an automatic thing that you make a living as a writer. And so I thought, well, if I could be a journalist, then maybe that would be a good trade for me. And I would get to practice my writing skills, but find a way to live while I'm perfecting those skills. I know. I think we all have, that makes sense. I think we all have that goal of making a living being a writer, and that's what we strive for. And then we do other other work on the side. <laughs> it is so true. Writing is sort of the, unfortunately, the second job often after the the main job of the day. Yeah. How long did it take you to write that memoir? I actually wrote it quite quickly. Um, I did the first draft in about nine months. I think it's partly because I just was really eager to tell the story. I think all of the material was just primed to come out of me. And um, I also had transitioned from working as a journalist to working as a ghostwriter. And so I had helped a number of people write memoirs at the point that I sat down to write mine. And that was just so incredibly helpful because I knew a little bit about how to approach it. I knew what some of the pitfalls might be. And um, I kind of liken it to training for a marathon. I think I just was in good shape as a writer. You know, I had stamina. Well, yeah, it had to help uh, affect your writing, of course. That's that's unbelievable. And and I was going to ask you, it had to be therapeutic to write as well, obviously. It definitely was. Um, just to give you a little window into my relationship with my dad, by the time that I um, was sitting down to write the memoir and had been contracted to do so, uh, my dad and I had formed a friendship. We had known each other for about nine years at that point as adults. He was very supportive of my writing, but he also tends to be a little bit, I don't know what the nice way to say it would be, but maybe full of himself or you <laughs> how he responded when I called him and said, dad, I, I finally did it. I sold a book. You know, I'm going to write a memoir about my relationship with you. And he said, I always knew we'd write a book together someday. <laughs> Well, I, I hear that, but I won't use, um, I won't uh, comment on how the description <laughs> of a personality like that. Yes, we'll be, we'll be kind because he is a wonderful person and I, I really appreciate that, you know, he has come back into my life. He's taken accountability for his actions of the past and he actually was quite helpful in the writing. You know, I was able to kind of informally interview him and get a sense of what he was up to during the years when we weren't in touch so much. And even just having him read the book was, as you said, healing. It was it was just incredible to be able to show him what my experience had been. I think a lot of us as writers want to communicate with other people. And it's so validating when we get that response back. I mean, you must feel that with having several books that you've published at this point. Well, it's only two. <laughs> Well, two is an accomplishment, as you well, know, just finish one, one book. <laughs> but, 
But getting back to your dad, yeah, I mean, he is your dad. So yes. at the end of the day, you you love your, your father no matter what. Even, you know, though you've gone through those tough times, it's made you grow in a different way. And uh, he's your dad, to your point. So you love him to death through thick and thin, and, and you're going to support him, which I, 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 you know, admire you. For that, because I know it's it was tough going from from everything that I've read, and I was going to say also yes. Yeah, so I had two I have two novels: The Bellman, which uh, was released in 2016, and then The Bellman Secret, which comes out in November. And that takes the both take place on the rocky coast of Maine, uh, because the second is obviously a sequel. And young man Stanley is chasing his dreams, and he ends up. In this uh, grand manor luxury inn, as you can imagine, in Maine, there are so many. Mm-hmm. Um, as a bellman and amongst eccentric ga- guests and odd staff and just a chaotic environment. He's trying to keep his job and get the girl that he admires. And And the bellman's secret uh, really continues the adventures of Stanley in this crazy environment and staff, uh, but more international guests and at Love Triangle and... Uh, Stanley fights to keep his girl and it's just really a lot of fun. And I, and I noticed that we have a few things in common with our books is that they both primarily take, mine takes place in Maine. Your, yours primarily takes place in Maine, correct? And Boston and other places as well. Definitely, you know, as I say in the book, although I sort of went off to seek my fortunes, uh, when I was 19 and moved away to the West Coast for a while, I do feel a strong affinity to Maine and to New England. And my parents are still, my mom and my stepdad, I should say, are still on the land uh, where I grew up. And so I feel really grateful to have an opportunity to go back there. I mean, I think as you point to in your books, uh Maine is known as vacation land. It's a place that people really aspire to spend time in because it is so beautiful. And people really do travel from all over the world, as you were saying, to to be there. And so I feel incredibly grateful that I have a home base there. Oh, it's amazing. I remember when I was there, I don't know if this still stands true, but it was, I believe, the third most visited park in the U.S., or maybe North America. I don't know if that still stands true, but uh, there. Oh, I don't even know how many visitors come through today. But, but in Acadia, Acadia, yes, Acadia National Park, exactly. Yeah, and and we also have in common that we have a coming of age book, mm-hmm. first person. Uh, although yours is nonfiction and mine's fiction, but it's based on real life experiences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's kind of neat. And, but I primarily spent summers up there. And so I would be up there five months out of the year. And, you know, you really only have five months to make it or break it in that business because, as you know, everything shuts down. So you have five months, May to October, to, to try and make a living, mm-hmm. and and then you shut down. So, uh, you know, drain the pipes for the winter and all that. I did spend, however, one winter up there. And and I'm talking about before when it once it was turned into an inn. It was previously our summer home, but when it was turned into an inn, I did spend one winter up there, and it was like Stephen King's The Shining. <laughs> it was dark by four, pitch black by five. Yes. 
<laughs> you had a few toddies by six. It was just, it was scary. No one was around. No, hardly anybody went out. But it was a, it was an interesting experience. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, the village where I grew up was the same. You know, we had one seafood restaurant that would open for the season on Memorial Day and or Memorial Day weekend, and they would run through Columbus Day in October, and that was it. And then we had a uh, gas station slash general store, and we had a uh, little, like, uh, kind of a gift shop that's also sold penny candy and ice cream, and that was also seasonal. So for most of the year, you could get, you know, gas and a few basic groceries, uh, and that was it. Oh, I, well, that one year, it's so funny to your point. I happened to have a spur-of-the-moment Christmas party, and it was started snowing like crazy. And I thought, I only just invited people today. There's no way they're coming out. And everyone came out. Snowstorm, whatever it took. I think everyone just needed a break and some camaraderie to know that there were other people around. <laughs> I was going to say that they were probably so glad to get out of the house. They said, I'll walk there if I have to. I think that was about somehow they made it. I don't know if it was by sleigh or what, but it was a it was a great party. I never expected but a few souls to uh, appear. <laughs> and did you ever make it to Bar Harbor then? If I had been to Bar Harbor. Uh, my, my mom and my stepdad were big um, campers and uh, just – I guess you would say fans of nature. I mean, as I said, that's a large part of what brought them to Maine in the first place. And so we did go up to Acadia on at least one occasion and uh, go to Bar Harbor as well. Now, this was uh, many years ago. And so before the reign of Martha Stewart, which I'm sure has changed the town a lot, I haven't actually been up there since she has kind of put it on the map in her own way. That's right. I understand she has a house there. <laughs> she does, and I found that in her magazines, she's often recommending, um, you know, like a certain—I can't think of it—but maybe like a, almost like a Pendleton blanket, but it's manufactured by someone right in Bar Harbor there. And I think it must be wonderful for for tourism and for the the local industries that are there. Oh, I think so because that's really what it's built on—is the the tourism, isn't it? It's so true. I mean, yeah. it's. Definitely the major economy of the state, especially as, you know, lobstering has been on the decline, unfortunately. Right. And I was going to ask you, are you a big lobster fan? Oh, yes. Even when I was a little girl, I could crack a lobster in about, you know, 15 seconds. And all my uh, aunts and uncles who would come to visit, they it always would make them laugh because I thought I knew better than them. And I often did, you know, for someone who was visiting, say, from <laughs> Jersey. <laughs> They could be a little perplexed by a lobster. That's how I was, too. That's so funny. We're going to have to go for lobster sometime. I'll I do some tricks. I, oh, I know the tricks. I know the tricks. That's true. <laughs> but I tell you, I try lobster all over the place around here. And you know that the lobster truck, Cousin's Lobster Truck? No, have you tried that? Not familiar with that. Oh gosh, yeah, they have it here. They have it all over, and I'm not promoting it, but it's just <laughs> one of the. It is fantastic, and so one time they, I was walking. Um, and they they're here in Brentwood on a Sunday sometimes, and they go other places, 
and they wouldn't take my credit card because the machine wasn't working. And so I thought, oh, my gosh, I have to go home because I had no cash. Right. I walked home in the heat. I was dying. And then I, I took my credit card, went to the bank. Oh, no, I had to go to the deb, debit machine. Sorry, okay. they were taking the credit card. I had to get my debit card. Go to the bank, get cash out, then walk back, and I'm dying and get there before they close. But I had to have that lobster. It's Maine lobster. It's and a rare treat. It's, it's delicious. Yeah, you have to try it. But but we're not here to promote <laughs> promote the lobster truck. But that's so funny because there's not many people that I find that just love lo lobster, and it has to be Maine lobster. It has to be from Maine. It can't be, you know, rock lobster from somewhere else. They're oh, it's so it's so true. I just yeah. was down in Costa Rica recently, and I had my first. Pacific lobster, and um, I enjoyed it, but it just was not the same at all. And uh, I'll, I'll right. take same lobster any day. Thank exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> Me too. And that rocky, were you near the rocky coast then a lot? Did you go walk around and collect shells and starfish and things like that growing up? Oh, I did because I grew up in uh, mid-coast Maine. So that's uh, if you take Route 1 north from Portland, it's about 60 miles north. Yeah. And uh, it's on the peninsula that is right at the tip of the peninsula is uh, Pemaquid Point Lighthouse, which is now made famous on the quarter. You know how they have the the quarters that are imprinted, each with a different state and a different uh, landmark from that state? Well, the main quarter has the Pemaquid Point Lighthouse on it. So there's just incredible, huge rock formations there, which of course, that's why they needed a lighthouse was to keep the boats off the rocks. And that was one of my favorite places when I was little to go and scamper around on the rocks and uh, just enjoy the sea spray and the view. I know. That's one of the things I remember the most as a kid, because I went there at a very young age when we uh, started mm -hmm. summer in there, and just walking along that rocky coast and picking everything up and watching the tide didn't come in and you didn't get stuck, which I often did. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you had to find another route out or around. <laughs> yes. And then you could, your parents were wondering where you were all day while you were stuck. <laughs> Yes, of course. And then we used to have, unfortunately, it was really tragic, you know, it, maybe not every season, but every few years there would be a tourist who would get washed, washed off the rocks at Pemaquid um, because they didn't understand just how fierce the ocean could be at times. Oh, it really is. We have near us Bar Island, and a lot of people get stuck on that. Mm -hmm. just, have you heard of Bar Island? I have. I've not been there myself, but well, it sounds that like it. So many cars get stuck on there, and they. My parents actually had a, a car stuck on there, oh. and yet, and people can lose their cars because the tide goes up so fast, and then they get stuck on the island. And luckily, they have a payphone there, but they get stuck. But they're, what are they going to? I guess call a boat emergency company. I'm not wow. sure. What they do, but then their cars drowned. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's gone because that tide comes up so so fast. And and this time of the year has to be beautiful. The foliage must be starting about now or pretty soon. It would be pretty soon. It's usually sort of dependent on when we have our first frost. And unfortunately, the frosts are getting later and later, which is, I mean, it's good for my mom's garden, but 
again, it, it's sort of a part of these larger trends that are unfortunately having an impact on the state. I mean, I, my understanding, not being a scientist, but is that's partly why the lobstering has diminished so much. It's not just overfishing, which they're pretty careful about, but the waters have actually been getting warmer off the coast of Maine. And so the lobsters are going north. I guess they prefer the cooler water in Canada. And it's been a problem for the, the locals and, and the economies that depend so much on the lobstering. Oh, no, I didn't know that because that's going to break what I've been telling Canadians because I lived there so long. I've been telling them there's a border under the water and there's a difference between Canadian and Maine lobsters. But if they're going to that side, that's going to uh, not going to. Well, they, they do have those big claws, so they probably just figured a way to claw through your border. And <laughs> yeah, I think so. Oh, my gosh. So when, uh, so when did you move to L.A.? I've lived in L.A. for almost 12 years now. Oh, wow. Oh, that long. I've lived here. Well, coming up to, I'll be coming up to two years pretty shortly. But I actually haven't even been here. I've been here like past that time because mm -hmm. I keep going away. But mm -hmm. I am trying to settle. What made you decide on L.A.? I always say that I fell in love with L.A. in the same way that you fall in love with a person. I came here to visit a friend um, a few years before I finally moved and I was living in Boston at the time and there was just a, something so magical to me about it I think because it was extremely exotic compared to New England you know all the palm trees and the Spanish architecture and um, just things that I wasn't used to from Maine Right. It's completely different. They're both wonderful, but it's completely different. I felt the same because my father was from L.A. and he used to take me here uh, occasionally. Mm -hmm. And I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. It just felt right. And I the weather, I, I actually moved here for the weather and the yeah. lifestyle. I just fell in love with it. I, I thought when I moved abroad for, I was abroad for so long, I thought when I came back, I always knew I was going to come back to California, mm -hmm. but I always thought it was going to be Northern California because that's where all my relatives are. Mm -hmm. But I thought, no, I'm going to, I'm going to move to uh, where I want to move. And, and somebody said to me before I left, they said, why are you going to LA? Do you know people there? And I thought, I had to stop and think, do I know people there? I didn't even think if I knew people here because it didn't matter because that's where I was going. I would meet people. <laughs> did, did you know people other than the friend you spoke I was very, I was very fortunate. I had I was very fortunate. I had several good friends who lived out here. I had um been working at that time in Boston as a music journalist and so I was writing about pop music for the Boston Globe, and I knew quite a bit of people in the music industry. And of course, much of the music industry, at least in the early 2000s, was based in Los Angeles still. And so I had some work connections and some friends, but I felt the same way as you. I just thought I loved the lifestyle. I found everyone really friendly and welcoming. And so I, I just wasn't concerned about meeting people. I felt like if we both had an affinity for Los Angeles, that we probably would get along pretty well. Exactly. Exactly. And do you, do you feel then LA's your home more so than Maine or feel a bit both or? 
Oh, that's a really hard question. You've put me on the spot. I mean, I do love California and I do feel, you know, as I said, an affinity for the landscape and the lifestyle and the people. But I would say I still take a little bit of pride in being from Maine. And there is sort of a independent streak that I see in Mainers or maniacs, as we're sometimes called. And I, I, you know, I still keep a little bit of a watch on the politics there and, and on the culture. And, you know, I feel very grateful that because my parents were such big environmentalists, they've acquired a little parcel of land that, you know, we always intend to keep in the family as part of their wishes. And so it, it's nice to know I'll always have a home base there. That's so neat. I, I read about that. That's I think that's wonderful that you have that piece of land there forever. And you, so you must go up there yearly, once a year? I always do. I try to go because I, I generally go around the holidays, which, as you already mentioned, can be a little dreary. And it, it's not the snow. If it snows, it's beautiful. But it really does get dark at, like, 4 o'clock. I don't think people understand unless. <laughs> I've been there or spent time in like uh, northern like Alaska. Yeah, yeah. So it's you know, and of course when I'm with my family and it's the holidays, it's cheerful and it's nice, but not exactly prime vacation time. So I always do try to go back, you know, another time in the year, maybe in the spring or the the autumn when the weather's nicer and you can get outside more. Well, exactly. It, and and uh, I find that, too. And actually, Alaska, I guess that's always either all dark or all light, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. people from there, and I, said, I thought to myself, how can you live with such little light during those times? But it kind of reminded me of that when it, when it did get dark so early. I was like, I can't believe it's 4 o'clock. But, you know, tr- it tricks your brain. And so now, do you have any uh, book signings or events coming up? I don't actually. I The last book that I was a part of was a rare bird book called Critically Acclaimed, which was this really fun project where they had a bunch of writers make up movies and then write reviews of them, which was just so fun to do. But we had some readings for that back in the spring, and... I'm just starting to work on a new novel. So as you know, there's sort of the cycle of promotion and the cycle of hermiting, I guess you might say. So <laughs> I'm in the hermit stage right now. I imagine you must have a lot of events lined up. Well, we're getting there. Yes, yeah. I will have. Absolutely, I will have. I don't have dates yet, but it's in the works. <laughs> so then that's always fun when it's, you know, you're, you've put the icing on the cake and now you can get out there and relax a little and enjoy it. Oh, <laughs> Not absolutely. that you don't enjoy it. You enjoy it when you're writing it. But it's just like you you do become a bit of a hermit because you have to just turn your phone off and, and kind of uh, concentrate on your writing. And sometimes people think you're ignoring them when you're... You're actually not. You're just busy working. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And have you gone back and done readings in Maine from your first book? I haven't yet, but I'm hoping to this year. So that's in the works. So okay. I'll let you know in case you're up there or want to come up there for my reading. 
Yeah, absolutely. Maybe I can get a little lobster. <laughs> I would always take any excuse to go eat some lobster. And uh, I, I, as with you, I've not had a chance to finish reading both of your books, but I've enjoyed what I have been able to read. And it was really nice. It brought me back to my home state. And also I can tell you my, my first job was working at the little seafood restaurant in my village. So I had that same experience that you described so vividly of, you know, opening up the business for the season and the kind of anticipation of how much work there is to do and that the, you know, guests are going to be arriving soon. And so it, it really brought me back to a lot of my memories. Oh, that's neat. Well, that's good to hear because it, exactly it's different when you have a year-round operation of a hotel or restaurant than when you have a season to open completely closed and often you have to drain the pipes for the winter. There's a lot to be done and yeah. uh, fix all the, you know, patch everything up that's, you know, gone astray and so people don't realize how much work goes into a seasonal property and then the pressure of having so many months to, to make it or break it. But but it's fun. It's fun. It's just full-on intense. Like when you get to a deadline in a book, you're just full-on intensely writing. That's what that's the seasonal business is. Well, yeah. What is your book, your new novel about? Oh, I'm not being coy, but I'm... I'm uh at that sort of superstitious stage, right? Oh, okay, don't say that. <laughs> I, don't I, I understand. Yes, you know, it's it's such a funny, it's sort of like alchemy. You have the idea and then you need the characters and the world. And of course, one of my questions for you upon um, reading parts of your first book was, and I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but did you draw on some of your more, demanding or, or colorful guests that you had experienced from your time of, of having the bed and breakfast when you were writing uh, stories that happened in the book? Well, you know, I was asked that the, the other day, and I didn't actually answer it properly because it's hard for me to answer because I think all the, so many of the guests that, have, that came through over the years, they kind of, they're kind of all they, they've washed up in my head. Mm -hmm. So what's coming out in my books is really subconsciously coming out. So there are some, like when we had conferences or Mobutu there from Zaire, Africa, mm -hmm. or the Teamsters or certain conferences that did come up there and there. But the personalities of some of the guests, are they could be a mix of personalities. So I can't say they're actually one guests that I remember coming up, like Mrs. Butterfield, right? you know, <laughs> and the staff is kind of a mix as well. It's a mix of personalities. So if, I think because it, I started it so long ago, it's just a wash of all these things. And I just really believe everything's just in my subconscious. And all of a sudden, these characters are developing, which is, is interesting. Oh, of course. No, I, I do think it often works that way. It just it makes me happy for you because I'd imagine that if you'd had just a total nightmare of a guest that it would have been vividly etched in your memory. So I'm glad there was nothing that was so traumatic that uh, you had to render it on the page just to. Oh, 
Oh, there were, there were nightmare guests. There were, but they just weren't repeat guests. And there may have been a reason for that because I may not have allowed them back. But there were definitely nightmare guests, but there were a lot of fantastic, you know, guests coming through as well. It was a bit of a mix. I say more, you know, happy guests, mm-hmm. but just a few that were uh, very difficult and and uh, it's interesting, though, because it's just such a complex world and such a fast world, and and uh, you're running through it in in five months. Of course. Of course. But anyway, well, we have to get together, you know, since we're both in L.A. And Absolutely. And, and let go me out for lobster. that I come to you and we meet over lobster. Lobster and wine. <laughs> Let's do that sometime. And so it's such a pleasure, Sarah. And your book is all over bookstores everywhere, right? It should still be in bookstores. It's also always available on, you know, like pals.com is a great independent bookstore that I love. And they will ship all over so you can find it there. And, of course, amazon.com. And I just wanted to wish you the best of luck with your uh, new release in November. I can't wait to hear how it goes. Well, thank you, and I wish you the best with Good Girl and a continued success with Good Girl and also on your new novel, which I'm excited. When you're ready to tell me about, <laughs> then um, I'm excited to read that as well. Oh, thank you. You'll be the first to know. Well, it was okay. great talking with you. Great talking with you too, Sarah. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.